Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver, a show where we bring you three different stories about science, technology, and the future of our environment. And we're starting with the economic value of a park or the fields behind your house. What would you invest in protecting a local forest? How would you feel about someone from another state or even another country making that investment? Especially if they were hoping to reap a monetary reward. These were just some of the questions raised at the end of last year as the New York Stock Exchange debated whether to allow trading on natural asset companies. The idea was to list companies with missions to improve or restore wild spaces and then give the benefits of habitat protection a numerical value. New York Times reporter Linda DePillis wrote about this issue in an article titled Nature Has a Value, Could We Literally Invest in It? And she joins us now. Welcome to All Sides, Lydia. Good to be here, Anna. Can you start by explaining what a natural asset company is? Sure. So it is a particular thing you've probably heard before of various ways of valuing nature. What this would do is capitalize the value of what are called ecosystem services into a company that may or may not be able to actually derive revenue from those services, but hopes to in the future and in general just believes that those services provide value and it, and that is captured in the equity of the company, um, which may then increase or decrease in value in the future. Um, the idea, as you mentioned, was to trade them on an exchange, uh, and that is no longer an option for now, as I'm sure we'll get to. Yes. Uh and I think it can be a little hard to kind of wrap your head around because if you have, say, a park, whether it's a private park or a public park, you can charge an entrance fee and you can see how you can make money. Uh, it's pretty obvious how a ski slope makes money off maintaining, you know, undeveloped land or, you know, conversely, how logging produces value from a parcel of land. But to have a piece of land have sort of an intrinsic value in being a forest, I think that's where it feels a little more ephemeral. Absolutely. Right. So if you think about it, a forest does a lot of things for us besides providing wood or serving as uh, the backdrop for a ski slope, right? They also clean water. They create water even by drawing rainfall. Uh, they suck carbon out of the air. They host a diverse range of species. And this is true of many different ecosystems, from grasslands to coral reefs. And the, they all have value to humans, but not in ways that we generally appreciate. It's more like we appreciate them when they go away. So uh, the many forest fires that have happened across the West have had ter terrifying consequences for, uh, for water quality, for air quality, uh, you know it when it goes away. And so the idea is to try to capture that, um, even if you can't charge for those services at, at right now. Now, in the future, the hope is more of those services will be monetizable. So currently, actually, carbon is, in a way, especially in Europe, uh, where companies are required to offset their emissions um, to try to slow climate change, there is a market for carbon credits. And so ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere can create those carbon credits, which trade out a market, and provide a revenue stream for people who preserve or create 
forests. Um, so the 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 folks who are behind these natural asset companies, though, say not all of nature is reflected in carbon sequestration. There's so many other things that nature does for us or is valuable just for its own sake that is is not captured in, in carbon sequestration. So they wanted to create a way to monetize that. And they would ink agreements granting them ecological performance rights. Now, would this potentially restrict how the land could be used in the future? Yes. So the proposal that the New York Stock Exchange put forward to the Securities and Exchange Commission, it was asking for permission to list these kinds of companies on its exchange, set out a whole bunch of rules, basically, for how these companies were to operate. And they had to have an ecological performance statement according to a prescribed set of accounting rules. And um, there were prohibited uses, anything that was extractive or destructive to the land that was going to be enrolled in these natural asset companies. So that would include oil extraction, lots of forms of mining, um, agriculture that is not regenerative, but is instead bad for the soil, uh, maybe includes lots of chemicals that pollute water. But positive uses, you could have revenue generating uses, and you could increase the value of the natural asset company even by moving from a destructive use to a less destructive use, like soybean farms that uh, are organic, that kind of thing. That would create value as well. And this is where conservatives and property right advocates raised a couple of concerns, right? They did. So fairly quickly, um, groups that are pretty much anti-conservation in how they operate generally uh, picked up on the proposal and particularly the aspect that would have allowed public lands to be enrolled in natural asset companies. They're really, really sensitive about, and this has been an area of contestation in the West fiercely for decades, and it's increased in the last few years. Um, so there were concerns about the ability of, say, foreign countries to invest in a natural asset company that would then uh, own the rights to the ecosystem services provided by, say, a national park or a national forest. And that would preclude uh, those places from having oil leases on them, for example, or timber production. And you know, the response to that, and it got a little bit overwrought, right? A lot of things were said about natural asset companies that the proponents never have wanted, never wouldn't agree with and have in, put in safeguards against. So, um, and, you know, of course, foreign countries can and do already buy up large swaths of land directly. You know, you may have read about alfalfa farms in Arizona, where there is clearly not the water for it, but Saudi Arabia needs them, needs it. So um, so, so that was what ultimately created a political firestorm involving oversight letters from the House Natural Resources Committee, uh, you know, letters from a bunch of state treasurers uh, and uh, attorneys general. And ultimately, the stock exchange just said, this is not worth it. Uh, we're going to pull the plug. And so they're a little bit figuring out what to do next. And I think you touched on an important piece of context for those here in the Midwest, that in the West, particularly the Mountain West, there are counties where 70, 80, even 90 percent of the land is federally owned. And it's sort of hard to conceive in sort of the overdeveloped 
uh, eastern side of the country that there are places out west where you can drive 100 miles and never encounter a gas station or another living soul. That's absolutely right. And what the backers of natural asset companies would say is that a lot of this land has been degraded by uh, de- by overgrazing, um, by you know strip mining, and 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 the federal government and some state governments have done that because it's revenue generating, right? Like they these are these lands are owned by taxpayers, and there's a lot of pressure to use them. Sometimes that kind of activity supports a huge percentage of local budgets, and so the argument is why don't we uh, create an alternative revenue stream to preserve the things that we have that create value but currently are simply not reflected in 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 capital markets you interviewed a nebraska resident named debbie whose family has worked to commercialize milkweed which is one of the only things caterpillars of imperiled monarch brownflies will eat what what kind of concerns did she raise yeah so debbie was really interesting and i found her because she she was among among the thousands of people who posted in the sec comment docket and I, I thought it was it would be good to talk to her because she clearly shares the desire to to preserve these natural lands in a way that many of the po- opponents really don't quite um, believe in. And she was worried that it, um, and there's a lot of skepticism, especially in these rural places about billionaires who have bought up big areas of land and sometimes stewarded them well, but sometimes been kind of wrongheaded about it. And there's just an idea that this is all being sort of taken away from us. Um, And there's a lot of consolidation happening. Family farms are being squeezed. And so I think that's her context. And so she depends on the willingness of local landowners to let residents come pick milkweed pods, which she pays them for and then processes that milkweed, which is a really strong fiber, into bedding and insulation and and cloth and that kind of thing. And it's really good for those landscapes and it creates a revenue stream. It creates local incomes. And her concern was, well, if some land got enrolled in a natural asset company, then those investors would have the right to that production. And they would get double rights because they would get the milkweed, which creates value, but they would also get this this stock value basically or improving the land and I can't compete with that. So I've been trying to do this, develop this business model and I would get muscled out. And you know, she really the more she learned about how natural asset companies actually worked and the fact that for example, they do have a provision that requires them to develop equitable benefit sharing policies that would distribute some stock locally and have to work with local businesses. You know, she's like maybe it isn't that bad. And I think that um Part of the problem here was that the backers of natural asset companies just assumed that people who are invested in conservation would think this sounds like a great idea, but and didn't really sort of bargain for both the misinformation that circulated and the just deep skepticism that people have about financialization at Wall Street and the idea that, don't worry, we're here to help. Um, <laughs> because uh, we all saw how that worked. For example, not I'm old enough to remember the financial crisis, right? Um, so when you have something that sounds like kind of an exotic financial instrument, the initial reaction is to be skeptical. I don't think they quite were uh, ready for that. Yeah, I think it also raises the concern of with public land, um, you know, particularly you hear sometimes of places, wild places, being loved to death and there'll be limits to permit or restrict access to certain places because of 
the damage, quite literally, of tourism to these locations. And I sort of wonder, did you get any hear any concerns about if an investor were to buy rights to public land, that they would one day shut it off and sort of say, hey, for the ecological benefit of this area, we're no longer allowing humans? Absolutely. Yeah, that is a concern. And that is honestly valid, right? Because if the idea is that this place provides benefits that are currently not monetized, um, but are being destroyed by excess visitation, then um, we capitalize those in the value of the company. And so it increases and we will be able to, you know, I think a lot of the investors who are interested in these companies altruistic motivations, right? Like, cause it's a new asset class. There's no guarantee they'll, they'll be able to monetize it, but they could, right. If there's enough interest and the analogy was made, um, and this helped me get my head around it to art or gold, which like, is it valuable? I don't know. It is because other people think it is. And that's how similar to how these natural asset companies would work. So I think that's, that's a fair concern, but then you have to ask, ask yourself, would we rather preserve these lands for future generations or would we rather trammel them now, even if it means that we get to see, you know, Yellowstone or whatever? And the Rockefeller Foundation was one of the companies that was interested in making these kinds of investments, right? They were going to contribute $1.7 million. So to be clear, Rockefeller, uh, which is a foundation, um, gave them basically seed money to develop the idea. So mm-hmm. in the Intrinsic Exchange Group is the company that exists basically to incubate natural asset companies. And so, but a lot went into developing this accounting me- methodology and reaching out. This wasn't just in the U.S. Actually, a lot of their original uh, ideas and some of their ongoing ideas are in uh, critical landscapes in Central America, South America, where you have really endangered forests um, that are, are very vulnerable to development, right? So, uh, so Rockefeller, uh, yeah, and they, and this is part of, they're broadly interested in developing ways to find market mechanisms that protect nature. And this is just sort of one of them. Um, and I, I talked to them and, you know, it's interesting because I was like, didn't you guys plan for the PR around this? Cause it's a lot of money <laughs> down the drain. Um, given that, you know, it's a big setback to not be able to list on, on a stock exchange. And, you know, I just don't think they really contemplated it, um, but they're going to have to going forward. Anyone who wants to back this sort of thing, because there is a really broad, really fierce opposition to uh, what you might have heard characterized as woke ESG, right? Like yeah. um, finance that attempts to do less bad um, is how I would sum it up. And um, and especially they have leverage when it comes to any public pensions or uh, uh, um public debt, right? Letting certain Wall Street firms handle debt issuances and bonds for government entities. So uh, people really have to tread carefully here if they want to pull this kind of thing off, um, knowing that there's a very teed up opposition campaign. And I think logistically, this can get tricky. So I used to live next to Lake Tahoe for a few years. And Tahoe is very protective of its lake, particularly the fact that it's blue. So, you know, oil runoff and what gets into the lake, it warms it up, you get algae, you get less blue. And over in Tahoe, they sell something called coverage, which is how much of your property doesn't have a house or a patio or a walkway. And it's really fascinating. So you can sell your land's coverage 
to Mm. somebody else. And it's Mm -hmm. really valuable. So like there are ranchers outside the basin that will sell their coverage, but then you can never build something there. And you'll literally have people sort of ripping up their front walkway to build a patio Mm. extension in the back. Huh. That's fascinating. And I didn't know that. And, you know, there's all kinds of mechanisms where you can create markets for a bad thing. Right. And it's you probably heard it when we were trying to do cap and trade for carbon emissions Mm. in in the U.S. That was set a limit. And you if you really need to pollute, you can buy other people's um, non-pollution, non-pollution. <laughs> right. And actually, these markets worked really well. Right. Like for um, nitrous oxide, I think was what a, pollu- a pollutants acid rain. Um, and, and it works especially well when it's really contained and you know exactly who the emitters are and uh, and you can bring it down that way. And it's an economists love it because it's super efficient. Um, rather than the sort of blunt instrument of regulations. And the folks backing natural asset companies basically say, listen, would it be great if there were a carbon tax in the U.S.? Absolutely. Is there one? No. So we're going to try to move forward with this private sector mechanism, which is entirely voluntary, um, to see what kind of interest that is there is out there, what kind of money we can generate for protection of these landscapes that nobody else has can, like come up with a revenue stream for. That was Lydia DePillis, a reporter for The New York Times. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Coming up, we're learning how Ohio's public high schools are starting to integrate artificial intelligence into the classroom. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver, a show where we bring you different stories about science, technology, and the future of our environment. And uh, while artificial intelligence has been suggesting movies and friends to us for more than a decade, the recent introduction of easily accessible tools like ChatGPT has brought generative AI into our lives and our classrooms. And not just because the program can write awkwardly worded essays on The Great Gatsby. Generative AI will likely shape our next decade, and both students and teachers could use a toolkit. Ohio has partnered with a nonprofit to launch an AI toolkit for K-12 students. And joining us now is the executive director of that nonprofit, the AI Education Project. Director Alex Cotran, welcome to All Assets. Thanks for having me. So Lieutenant Governor John Husted, um, who is the director of Innovate Ohio, uh, teamed up with you guys to build a toolkit for kids in school. Um, can you kind of walk us through what this toolkit is and how it's going to work? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's important to like start by saying that there is no um, uh sort of five-step guide, you know, to get AI in school safely, check the box and move on. This is really more like 
the beginning of the era of personal computing or the internet, where we don't even know um, what the next three years, what the next five years looks like. And so as schools are thinking about what are the guidance guidelines and policies that we need to have in place, you know, they're, they're trying to, you know, build guardrails and build tracks for what's essentially a moving train. Um, so what we, and when we were uh, discussing this with the Lieutenant Governor's team, um, we really honed in on what could we do that would provide not just guidance, but a, a roadmap for what does, what does the next, you know, year, two years, three years look like for school leaders? And how can we provide them with um, you know, if not the specific policies, the directionality, almost like a map of where they need to go to give them a sense of, you know, what's going to be expected of them, what do they need to have in place, and, and what are sort of like the, the low-hanging fruit. Um, so the toolkit really has two types of guidance. First, it's um, aimed at providing sound, transparent, and practical methods for translating high-level aspirational goals into actionable AI-focused policies that are implemented at the school level. Um, and, and the second piece, and this is really important is, you know, as we were going and, you know, putting together the, this, this toolkit, we started with a landscape analysis of like, what other guidelines have been published? And in the course of actually developing the toolkit, a series of guidelines had been published sort of under our feet. Um, and so we decided that what was most important beyond just sort of having that roadmap is not reinventing the wheel and rather pointing to all the relevant guidance that's already come out from organizations like uh, the EdSafe AI Alliance, uh, Teach AI, COSIN, ISTE, um, and, and other states. And so it actually reads almost like a, uh, a meta-analysis of resources. And so based on whether you're a teacher or an administrator or even a parent, um, it points you to the specific resources that exist, where they're relevant, and where they fit into that roadmap, as it were. At a granular level, will it provide guidance for things like whether using Grammarly with an AI-enabled like suggestion maker qualifies as cheating? Because there's been a lot of dust up recently about whether getting a suggestion for maybe how to do a better phrase of your sentence would then like trigger turn it in to say that your paper was AI gener generated and then you flunk. And that just sort of highlights that very like, difficult landscape we find ourselves in in education. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny because Cheating, on the one hand, is really where I think most folks in education, that's where they intersected with artificial intelligence uh, most recently, if, if not ever, right? I think most people obviously use um, social media and they're getting AI-driven content recommendations, but most of that is invisible. ChatGPT, the ability to literally write papers, um, is a tangible, you know, very only visceral example of, you know, what this looks like. Uh, and it is disruptive. Um in terms of like the guidance as to whether is it you know is a grammarly autocorrect cheating is um, a student using ChatGPT to maybe write an outline you know I think that there's a lot of gray area and I think that's actually um, it it's not so it, I, I wish it, I wish it was so easy as to say well you know if the students do X it's not cheating and if they do Y <laughs> it's cheating I mean I think that there's some obvious stuff for example uh, if a student literally copies and pastes. Uh, an essay that was written by Chad JBT, doesn't cite it, submits it as their own work. Um, I think academic integrity policies, as they stand, already cover that. That would be considered cheating. You haven't cited your source. Now, I think it's more complicated if a student um, uses Chad GBT along with other sources and they cite the fact that they used it and maybe they even quote 
um, the excerpt from ChatGPT. I think that's actually more of a judgment call on the part of the teacher. And it comes down to um, how are you having a conversation with kids about where ChatGPT fits in as a tool? Um, but what I'll also say is, you know, maybe the most important guidance is if you're sending students home with a take-home essay, you know, like the, the age of the take-home essay is basically over um, because there's basically no way to truly guarantee that a student isn't, a savvy student isn't actually, you know, finding a way to use ChatGPT to, um, to, to help them write that assignment. And so part of this is, you know, having integrity, academic integrity policies in place. But part of this is also teachers, um, you know, getting, you know, read up on what's capable with these tools and designing their assessments so as to be more resistant to, or at least resilient um, to those types of uh, tools, let's say. It reminds me of the debate that was going on when I was in high school about how to cite internet sources and whether Wikipedia was reliable or not reliable. I I, I think as, I think it was a very apt uh with uh, analogy that you made at the beginning that, you know, the birth of the internet, which is when I was going through middle and high school, was really a time where we were trying to figure out what that all meant. And plagiarism became a real issue when people could post and share their essays online, even before we got to AI generation. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the, the internet is a good analog. I mean, calculators is also, you know, I, this is a little bit before my time, but my mom's a teacher and, and teaches in Akron Public Schools. And you know, she, she teaches math and, you know, for her, it was a very big deal when, you know, graphing calculators came out and, oh. you know, suddenly they realized that, um, you know, you had to have certain measures in place. For example, you know, showing your work became a lot more important. And so it's an example of where, yes, there's also rules. You can't have a calculator out if you're, you know, on a test, for example. Um, but, but instruction changed, assessments changed, and teachers realized that we're not going to be able to prevent students from having calculators, but we can design our assessments so that um, it, it, it's, it still, you know, pushes them to do the, the critical thinking and the, you know, the application of their learning, um, or at least demonstrate that, demonstrate that learning. So how many schools here in Ohio are signing on to this project? We don't have the numbers to hand. I mean, it was released just last week. Um, what I'll say is the reception has been really strong. And I think part of this is also because, um, you know, yes, this is really important for schools and there's a lot of desire for, you know, help and guidance. You know, this is also makes Ohio one of the first states in the country to um, put out a resource like this. And and I think more than anything else, it's a signal that, you um, this state isn't going to uh, simply be waiting around to see what happens with AI. It wants to be a you know, forward thinker and actually setting the example of, you know, how to implement AI in a safe, responsible, and effective way in the K-12 system. And you have to start with guidance like this. Um, so I am excited to see sort of what the reception is. For me, what's more important than just how many schools are sort of like accessing the document is, what are the stories and case studies of how teachers are actually responding to some of these um, sort of core principles? Um, and it's not so, I'll give you an example. So um, one of the things that we saw, and we, we saw other schools around the country that had published guidelines uh, and, you know, or, or policies. And when, when schools say they published AI policies, generally speaking, they're not really policies. They're, they're more like, let's say, ethical principles or sort of like overarching, uh, 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 you know, let's say theories of action. Um, and sometimes you'll see something like this and it sounds 
maybe straightforward at first. It's like, well, we believe that every student should have access to um, AI. It should be something that's equitable uh, so as to ensure that we're not exacerbating tech inequality. Um, and you read that and it sounds completely reasonable and something every school should commit to. Um, but what isn't necessarily acknowledged in that is that these models are really expensive. I mean, in some cases, you know, a single, you know, prompt uh, um, session of prompting can cost one, two, three dollars. Um, and so you scale that at the scale of a district and suddenly you're talking about that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands for a large district, millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year for every single student to have access to the tools. And so to say that we believe in equity or accessibility, what you're also implicitly saying is we are going to do the hard work of figuring out how to allocate budget to these tools. We're going to figure out how to address some kids having access to a more powerful model because equity wouldn't, it wouldn't be equitable if some kids had GPT-4, the more powerful version of chat GPT, and other kids had GPT 3.5, which is the, the free version. So even, even in terms of access, there are, there are considerations there. And so, um, you know, I would, I would kind of, uh, be a little bit skeptical if a school said they had figured all of it out. I think for me, it's more about who are the experts that they're convening? What is like sort of that, uh, working group look like? Does it include not just administrators and a CIO, but does it include classroom teachers? Are they responding to, um, even feedback from students and parents about, you know, what they really care about because I think this is something that we're really making decisions about as a society together. The discussion of fairness and access to AI opens another conversation that I wanted to touch on, which is nearly a million people here in Ohio lack broadband access. And the pandemic exposed how many students lacked home computers and used their phones to access the internet. And, you know, we're talking about access to AI-enabled tools when sometimes we, we also need to be talking about access to the internet just generally. Yeah, this is like a very common, um, if not the most pressing challenge in education. Like no matter what the issue is that you're trying to hone in on, in our case, it's AI literacy. Um, so the AI education project, we literally, we have free curriculum, we go into schools, we try to, get, we try to make it easy for teachers to implement those curricula. Um, but very often we run into, run into challenges, you know, whether that's access, broadband access, or it could be just, you know, really significant learning loss after the pandemic or teacher shortages or transportation issues if you're a rural school. Um, so there's always going to be these macro challenges and I, I don't want to gloss over them and, and, and be dismissive that they're not critical, but I think, um, there, we have to be, you know, education is a very complex domain and those who work in education, I think are quite familiar with having to parallel track all of these, you know, really important challenges that we have to tackle. I will say that broadband access, the stakes are now higher than ever because this is now more, this is about more than just being able to, you know, submit your homework online or, um, you know, do research or access the internet. This is now maybe one of the most important tools that you're going to be using not just as a student, but certainly as a worker. Um, and so the 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 risk of of not being, you know, tech literate, um, you know, and, and building those skills while you're in high school, I think is uh it's just it's it's even it's even scarier than it was before. And it was already quite you know concerning for someone to not have, you know, those um those resources. You're also working with districts in Colorado, Maryland, Hawaii. How does your toolkit vary from state to state or 
does it really at all? That's a good question. And we're actually in the midst of doing that analysis right now. I mean, I think as part of the toolkit that we developed in Ohio um, with Innovate Ohio, um, you know, we talked to dozens of educators and superintendents, and we also talked to folks who had been doing work outside of Ohio. Um, and we also referenced guidelines that had been published by other states. And what I would say is that it, roughly speaking, um, there's a lot more similarities and differences. You know, ultimately, the, the variations state by state are going to come down to what specific policies or regulations are states passing that are germane to setting up an AI policy. And that's primarily going to be in the domains of privacy. Um, there could be things, there could be uh, laws passed around the safe use of AI tools. To my knowledge, there haven't been any states that have passed actual laws or regulations. And so at the moment, I think the, the, the guidelines are broadly applicable. Now, in two to three years, um, we may see, you know, certain states might have a much higher standard for, um, you know, what a tool needs to demonstrate in terms of even efficacy. Um, and that's something that's important, by the way, is like all of the AI tools that people are hearing about, whether, you know, there's, there's thousands of them at this point. Um, there are no standards for what constitutes an effective tool. And so a, a company can say, oh, well, our, our tool is, you know, doesn't have any algorithmic bias and it doesn't hallucinate. And there's not necessarily a way to validate that. We're, we have to take them at their word. And that's, you know, if you're an administrator and you're trying to make decisions about, you know, what tools do we procure um, to deploy, you know, having those procurement guidelines, having those standards is, you know, the most important thing when it comes, one of the most important things. And it's not something that the schools can do. And that's why this is, yeah, unfortunately, just a com it's a very complex endeavor. It's not something that a superintendent can just sort of snap their fingers and, and turn on. Yeah. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations here during Tech Tuesday about um, the ethics of creating fake videos, fake images, and how these softwares are trying to figure out ways to prevent, say, you know, those infamous images of Taylor Swift from ever being created. And what is an ethical AI company, particularly generative AI companies, and how do they guard against uh, the creation of misinformation. And that's something I think the companies themselves are still trying to figure out. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that we have to, um, we, we have to get comfortable with the idea that companies on their own aren't going to be able to solve this problem and specifically deep fakes. And this is something that actually I'm having a dinner in, um, at my home tonight with a bunch of different education leaders. Um, and that's because a good friend of mine, Michelle Culver, who's uh, at the reinvention lab at Teach for America, um, she and I were having dinner. We had just done some trainings in Hawaii, and she was like, "Alex, I can't stop thinking about what this is going to do to uh, young people, especially young adults, uh, because what does it mean in a world where a you have to be worried about the possibility that if someone gets mad at you, they can create a deep fake, you know, pornographic video with your likeness or." And, and even if it doesn't ever happen, that, that low-grade anxiety of the possibility of it happening. Um, and then the other piece is, you know, ultimately it seems quite obvious that, you know, very soon, if not even today, when we interact with the world, especially online, we're going to have to have a skeptical take on everything, everything that we see. And that doesn't feel healthy to me, you know, like this idea that you can't trust anything, especially for young kids. Um, so, so yes, companies need to be ethical. 
I think that this is also, you know, it's, it's kind of like smoking um, or bullying. This is actually also a societal conversation that we need to actually set some norms. You know, it should be so taboo to create a deep fake of somebody that you would be embarrassed for someone to find out that you'd even been playing around with the tools. And right now it's still seen as like a kind of cool curiosity and people are doing stuff and they're making deep fakes of celebrities and you can go on YouTube and see that. And, you know, my hope is that, um, and, and this is where, where policies kind of do intersect with us a bit, right? Where schools can kind of like set some standards for here's what we think is important. Here's how we're going to have this conversation in our buildings um, to try to kind of push this forward in the direction that we want. Um, because just like with smoking, you know, some parents, like my parents, they smoked for 20 years. And when I was growing up, they were very clear that like, you'd be insane if you smoke and we'll, you know, you're going to, you're going to get time out and grounded. And, but not every parent has those conversations and that's, you know, but thankfully when I was in school, I was also hearing those same messages uh, about smoking, about bullying. And I think that's where we need to just make sure that everybody is sort of on the same page with, you know, how do we safely interact with these, this brave new world that we're in. That was Alex Cotran, the founder and executive director of AIEDU.org. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Anna. Coming up, we're getting into the details on Sora, a new open AI software which allows users to describe what they want to create. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. Our third and final guest this hour is CNET ed- Managing Editor for Commerce, Russell Hawley, here to break down the latest in tech gadgets and news. Welcome back, Russell. Thank you. So ChatGPT creator OpenAI has introduced a new video producer called Sora, which allows users to describe what they want to create. So essentially, I would say something like, Give me a 10-second clip of a young girl with brown hair wearing a yellow sundress and have her toss a ball into a grassy field, and Sora would build that out for me, right? That's exactly right. Functionally, this works very, very similarly to its image creation software that uh, you can type in a simple text prompt, and it will generate an image uh, based on the information that you have provided it. This is images that are being created based on what it has learned from gathering, you know, from video in just a ton of other places. Our world is full of video and a lot of it is very public accessible. So it's able to very quickly categorize, you know, different uh, skin tones and, and, you know, hair color and things like that. Um, but like uh, the way that ChatGPT handles images, um, the, the videos, it doesn't take a long time to look at them and see that they're not quite 100% realistic. I watched a compilation of clips created by the OpenAI team. And my my takeaway, and I don't know if this was your takeaway, is that the animated scenes 
the ones of like the cartoon characters looked they looked pretty professional, kind of like what you'd expect from a Pixar movie about 10-ish years ago, uh, which immediately made me wonder about the future of animation. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the important thing about the way that Sora operates is that it, it can only generate things based on what it has learned. So you would expect it to have a, a wealth of information from art styles that are about 10 years ago because a lot of that information has, a lot of the technology that built that animation has since become either open source or publicly accessible. And so those things are a lot easier for Sora to, to grab as references in order to build things. So as far as how, uh, you know, current animation would be challenged by this technology, um, you know, as long as that information, the, you know, the animation styles remain, you know, kind of relevant and current, um, it's, it's a lot easier to distinguish what Sora is capable of versus what you would see in a theater today. Um, but that is something that is, is you know, going to be flexible depending on how much information OpenAI is able to give this uh, tool in the future. If, for example, Sora, OpenAI were to make some kind of agreement with Pixar, as unlikely as that may be, um, then, then that situation would change very quickly. Yeah, the generic human scenes, like they had one of a Japanese street in winter. It was it was pretty good, but the close-ups on living creatures, like the ones from real life, they they felt off to me. So I don't think anybody has to worry about Sora replacing human actors just yet. Yeah, it's not necessarily about replacing human actors. This this, you know, walks a very narrow line when it comes to misinformation, you know, how easy would it be to have Sora generate a news broadcast about a topic and be able to feed an exact mm. script to, to that topic and, and have it be generated. Um, you know, we, we consume a lot of things on small screens and those screens aren't necessarily great at showcasing detail. Um, so it, it, you know, it raises some alarm bells as far as being able to, to kind of demonstrate misinformation in, in unique and interesting ways. Um, but the, the underlying technology there is, is currently limited enough that it can be pretty easily pointed out that something is is artificial um, but like all forms of generative ai um, when it comes to text and image and, and now video um, it's really just a, a matter of of how much information uh, is presented to that piece of technology over time as to how much better it gets at tricking us the, my weird takeaway was that waves crashing in an ocean were the most obvious AI generated. And I, I don't know why. Like, there was this great little scene with, like, two pirate ships circling each other in a coffee cup. But the waves were just so obviously, like, not correct. I don't know why, uh, like, the motion of the ocean is really difficult to pin down for AI. This is, such an, this is such an interesting thing, and I'm so glad that you brought it up because the reason that it can't get it right um, is that it's not pulling from one single source. No wave looks exactly the same as another when you're looking at a recording of it. There are different angles and different, uh, you know, perspectives and, and different uh, places in which that weather is happening and where the, the ocean is behaving. And so Sora is grabbing from so many different sources in order to generate something new that it doesn't really have a single perspective to focus on where it has, you know, 100 million uh, different things to, to grab from. So it looks less accurate because it's kind of guessing based on what it knows, but what it knows comes from, you know, a million different perspectives from different cameras and different lighting angles and things like that. So it's a lot more challenging to do something that seems to us like it would be relatively simple. Oh, I'm so glad I asked because I was like, why, why is this one in particular such a struggle? But uh, Sora is not available for public use yet, correct? 
it is currently limited to, uh, you know, kind of special gated access, and it's something that OpenAI has claimed will be part of a subscription model moving forward, where anyone will be able to, to jump on and use it very much in the same way that it does with its image software. And what kind of security measures are they taking to guard against this technology being used to generate misinformation? You know, we have a presidential election coming up, and you you know, it's not unreasonable to worry about AI-generated videos spreading misinformation. So alongside with this announcement was some uh, messaging from OpenAI about how restrictions had been put in place to stop you from being able to say, I want a video that looks exactly like Anna Staber, you know, saying these things on camera. Um, the problem that you run into with promises like that is on, a, on an almost weekly basis, uh, there is a new example of how ChatGPT, the text version, has been sort of tricked, uh, you know, using conversational deception um, into generating things that it's not supposed to. Um, so, you know, and I suspect that that is one of the biggest reasons why this tool has not immediately been made public so that they can learn from all of the different requests that people are making. Um, there is, you know, uh, there needs to be some really strict gates in place for not just public figures, but, you know, kind of the kinds of information that are being discussed. And I suspect that there is an ongoing conversation about what specific video sources are being used in order to generate that stuff, because, um, you know, that that is going to become very personal very quickly for some people if uh, if ChatGPT doesn't have uh, those gates in place. And, and lawsuits seem almost assuredly likely if something goes wrong quickly. And Bose is out with a new funky-looking set of earbuds that clip not around <laughs> the top of your ears, but around the sides. These are wild-looking little headphones. These are wild-looking little headphones. I have a deep appreciation for a, a segment of headphones that are called open-ear headphones. And the reason that I like them, um, either you know, bone conduction or, or this, this design that Bose has, is that I can use them when I am outside working out or on my bike or something like that and can still hear the world around me while enjoying a podcast or music or, or something like that um, and, and feel a great deal safer while I'm doing those things. Bose um, has kind of avoided this this segment of the market for a while because one, it's, it's a little tricky to do and they're a little expensive and there's just not as many people interested in these headphones um, as, as much as uh, it bruises my ego to admit. Um, <laughs> they're, these, these headphones clip onto kind of the bottom of your ear and there's a little tiny speaker that rests just inside, um, not, not like fully inserting into your ear, but they rest very close so that there's a speaker pointed directly at your eardrum and it can, it can play that music while you can still hear the world around you. And because it's those, um, the, the audio quality is fantastic. Um, but there is no wireless charging for these, which actually really surprised me for an earbud at this price point because they're $299. Yeah. So like, like any other, you know, earbuds like this, they have to live in a case when they're not being used. And that case has, uh, you know, has a physical cable to charge it. Wireless charging, um, you know, is, is one of those things that we really want to be in everything when we have access to it because it's very nice. Um, it adds, you know, in some cases close to a quarter inch to the case. And Bose, uh, you know, when, when asked about this, said that they had to make a decision between whether the case would comfortably fit in someone's pocket, especially uh, women's pockets, um, or if it was something that uh, would end up living in a bag, um, but still had that additional feature. And so this is the, the path that they went for, for this, which is not uncommon. 
um, for, for headphone manufacturers. Everyone wants uh, a headphone case that is very similar to the AirPods case and that they're, you know, kind of thin and light and small and they can kind of go in everything. Um, but when you start messing with the shape of the earbuds like this, you're, you're kind of limited in, in what your case can look like. I will say the solution there is just to give women real pockets in their pants, but that's a whole other conversation. You will hear no disagreement from me on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> it is the bane of my existence. Um, I will say what I love about CNET's reviews is your guys' honesty, because in the article reviewing these, it says at $299, they're overpriced, but otherwise there's a lot to like about them. And I, I sort of love that. Like, yeah, these are very expensive for what they are, but here's all the reasons why you might want them, including, which I agree with you, particularly if you're somebody who runs long distances, having that ability to hear the world around you is actually really important. It's a really important safety feature, but it's a, it's also really important for us as reviewers to keep in mind that most people buy a single set of headphones and they use them. And as great as open-ear headphones are for someone who is working out and very active, they are the worst possible headphones you can have when sitting on an airplane. Uh, so it's it's kind of a tough sell in some cases when someone is spending, you know, $200 or $300 on a single set of headphones uh, to justify these as being kind of the only ones that you own. And finally, we're almost out of time, but Google is coming out with a new version of their Android operating system. We're now in the developer preview stage of Android 15. So what do we know about it so far? If you are very brave, you can install it on your personal phone right now and see what some of the new features are. Google uh, releases this in stages where they kind of add features and they let people test and give feedback. One of the big things that they're promising here is uh, increase in power management as well as safety features, um, very specifically features that keep your personal data from being sent to advertisers. Um, and that's something that uh, Google's been pretty strong about for a little while now. We're going to hear a lot more about this over the next couple of weeks. But um, if you are if you are very brave, you can try it out right now. And one of the things you did note, though, is that if you are going to try it right now, you want to back up your phone, right? Because it can create instability 100%. and data loss. Yeah. One time I installed one of these previews and I lost the ability to make phone calls. And I was traveling at the time, which was not a thing my partner was a fan of. <laughs> Um, I did find it interesting that they are really working on how apps draw power from the phone, so how hot it gets. And, you know, you don't have to That's think right. about it, but it's it actually is a really important thing to be thinking about. It really is. And honestly, one of the most power draining and heat generating things that our phones do on a regular basis is using the camera. Um, so, you know, being able to limit those kind of things without decreasing what these apps are capable of is a, a really delicate balance that all smartphone manufacturers have to work towards. That was Russell Holly, Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Thank you so much, as always. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for this hour of Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. Thank you for listening to 89.7 NPR News.